Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 98. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's guest is going to be Wynn Cooper coming up at the bottom of the hour. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry. And I know you love poetry too, so please do click the like button. Make sure you share. Make sure you're subscribed uh, everywhere. You can go ahead and do that, uh, whether you're watching on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or um, you know, after the fact on any of the iTunes or, or Spotify or any of that. You can click something to uh, tell the people that run those platforms that this is content that you like and that works a lot and helps us out spread poetry around the internet. Now, before we begin, as always, we're going to start with a half an hour of Poet Respond Live. And let's take a look at today's poem. Unfortunately, uh, Celia Serhando can't be here today, um, but we'll share her poem. And uh, it was based on this story, which, um, you know, I just love unusual stories. They're really fun uh, when you can write poems after things that they never heard of before and um, are kind of strange and, and not as serious. And uh, this was the article that Celia was writing about. Let me put this on screen. A fisherman catch 280-pound chunk of whale vomit worth $1.5 million. That was uh, the article here. Um, and you can see on uh, the video that's playing, if you're watching, uh, this is what the whale vomit actually looks like. Um, and it's used for making perfume. And apparently you can make a synthetic version of this um, ambergris. There it is right there. It's a, it's a scentless alcohol. Um, you can make a synthetic version of it, but it doesn't work as well as the real thing. And because we love whales, you know, we don't want to um, encourage whales to be, you know, um, harvested for this, of course. So uh, people have to find it. Um, sometimes it washes up on shore. Sometimes um, fishermen haul it up like happened here. So this fisherman, this group of fishermen off the coast of Yemen found a 280-pound chunk of it worth $1.5 million. And... Um, Celia thought that this was an excellent metaphor for poetry, which I think so too. And so it's a great way to kick off the show, kind of a, a bit of a fun poem. Um, but as you think about composing poetry and uh, what goes into it, um, here you go. This is Ambergris by Celia Sorhendo. Ambergris. Some pyrite worms gobbled long ago stayed lodged in our throats, irritated. We tried honey. We hacked. We swallowed hard. It took a stab in the black for us to gob it all out. Look, listen, amber chunks dredged up from the deep dark, spewed, putrid and staining pristine beach pages, Smell this gobular mass mess churned inside beast bellies. Though not worth millions, still priceless. And you, just humming along, minding your own business, dipping a curious hook in for something glistening in an ocean of words. You can feed yourself and your whole village for some time, with this one truth nugget you fished out. Once again, that was Ambergris by Celia Sorhendo. And uh, Celia is on the board of um, 
I noticed this when I was looking at her website. This is uh, Celia here. And she is on the board of um, the Nature Island Literary Festival, which I was hoping we could talk a little bit about it if uh, she could join us today. But um, yeah, there's Celia there. And um, that just sounds like a really fun place to go. It's in uh, the island of Dominica. And um, anyway, that was the uh, poet for today. Um, and the poem, of course, was uh, Ambergris by Celia Sorhendo. And now let's talk to uh, a, a bonus poem, another poem we have. And we have two poems about whales. We finally got our whale poem uh, for the diver who was swallowed by a whale. And hopefully, um, Jennifer John is here. Let's, uh, let's call up Jennifer John and see if she's actually here. Okay, well, since Jennifer's not here, um, maybe I'll call her. Let me see if I can call her up. Nope, that didn't work either. Okay, so we're going to have to uh, share this poem the, the same way. But this was this story, of course, uh, that, that was all over the news last week. Uh, Jennifer pulled up the story from Cape Cod Times. Uh, and here we go on this one. This was, uh, I was completely inside. Lobster diver swallowed by humpback whale off Provincetown. And um, if you want to hear, so there's the diver. I think everybody's seen this this picture. Um, and he was on um, one of those late night shows too. I saw an interview with him. A really cool guy with such a great, interesting story. Someone should write a uh, background, like a, a biography of him, or make a like a lifetime movie because he survived a plane crash um, a while ago, and uh, and now he gets swallowed by a whale. So of course, it's just a wonderful story. Um, and and some people are wondering if maybe it was possible. I believe it. I'm a believer. I'm a whale believer. Um, but this was uh, Jennifer Jean's poem about this, which will be featured on Rattle.com on Tuesday. This was Humpback Swallows Lobster Diver in Provincetown. And uh, let's let's run this up, too, uh, by Jennifer John, who Jennifer was on the uh, Rattlecast back in uh, February. So go check out uh, Rattlecast number maybe 70-something. Uh, but here she is reading Humpback Swallows Lobster Diver in Provincetown. Humpback swallows lobster diver in Provincetown. It's a great white, no whale, yeah. It's dark, it's up to him, I'm in or out. Like those injured jungle nights after the Sansa smash in Costa Rica or being dragged to sea from race point spinies. Tread, tread, treading, and every ten seconds is a damn day. Doggone, I'm gonna miss BB bad, break my legs, or die. I see the sand in her hair from Sunday, miss our damn kids, I don't decide. The dockmaster wouldn't let up about Mike, unfucking tangle your aluminum nets from my shit, and I decided not to. Shit, Josiah's gonna get the blame, the sweat stain on the front of that same damn red tee. He won't give it up, he's the shit. Ten seconds and the almighty every last body told me to go to joe's over on the dune side of town and draw a line say stop grifting our gear the jan jay is mine get your own boat if you want to lobster but i had to go on this damn dark dive with no bottom to the ten second day i don't decide something's muscling me all over then my life's like one of ma's best painted packard skies and spit into it and out of this young buck baleen deciding I can do whatever the hell I want. I want to buy Joe a bud and not because it tastes like destiny. But I'm happy to say it will. 
Again, that was a Tuesday's poem coming up um, by Jennifer John, Humpback Swallows Lobster Diver in Provincetown. And uh, Jennifer John about this said, uh, I love that the story proves the veracity of a particular biblical miracle and that Mike the Lobster Diver is a stand-in for every one of us coming out of the pandemic lockdown. From our own version of Joseph Campbell's Belly of the Whale, portion of the hero's journey. We were in that dark forever, it seemed, and now we're out, and life is new and full of possibility, opportunity, do-overs. We can be bruised, but healing and smiling. We can love everyone if we want. I don't know what if, I don't know if that's what Mike's done, of course, but that's what biblical Jonah does. That's what I'm trying to do. And so that was the the most interesting thing, is that um, Jennifer John, I mean, everybody, you know, was, was talking about the biblical, um, you know, similar to um, Jonah and the whale, but using it as a metaphor for um, the the year of pandemic and finally being released by it, a little bit bruised, um, but but still here for those of us who are, uh, was a really interesting metaphor too. So um, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, go back and read that again on Tuesday and, and listen to Jennifer read it again. And that is your uh, two poems we published this week on Poets Respond. Now let's go to some open lines. Um, and of course, the open lines are always uh, here. And they will be here after the show as well. How you do that, if you haven't yet, is uh, send an email to openmike at rattle.com. That's openmic at rattle.com. Email me the poem there so I can show it on screen as you read. Then uh, call me up on Skype at Rattle Poetry. Uh, just send me a chat message there. I will wave back if I've never talked to you before, and I'll let you know we're connected, and I'll call you when it's your turn. The other option is to call in by phone, 818-850-7727. Uh, that's 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a few times. Then hang up, and I will call you back when it's your turn. Um, within either, um, we don't have much time in the preview on the Poetry Respond Live portion, but afterward, after we talk to Wynn Cooper um, at the bottom of the hour, for we'll talk to him for an hour, and then we'll have open lines for, for a good hour after that, too. So I will call you in that portion if you'd like to join in. I also sent out a, a mass email this week, our summer quarterly you know submission calls and what's new at Rattle email. And I suggested people share poems on here on the open mic more because I, I, we were not getting a, uh, a lot of people taking advantage of this opportunity to share poems. So I mentioned that. And of course, you know, um, out of sight, out of mind and insight in mind. So we, uh, we have so many poems uh, in the inbox right now that people have shared, including audio sometimes, um, asking me to read them sometimes, saying they'll call in at some point. So we have uh, no shortage of poems all of a sudden. Um, so we'll see how uh, how that goes later. Uh, so Mike Bales is calling up right now. Um, but let's call up uh, Bailey McClelland. Uh, she's a poet that... Uh, I really liked her poem that she submitted uh, for Poets Respond Live. A really touching poem. Um, and uh, let's share this and call it Bailey right now. Uh, Bailey's been uh, in Poets Respond several times in the past. Sorry, everybody. I keep forgetting to uh, switch that. Hello. Hey, Bailey. How are you doing? It's great to see you. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's so glad. I'm, I'm so glad to. Um, honestly, you're one of those people where poetry seems to come so natural to you, and then oh. I worry that you uh, are going to get bored and stop writing poems because I I know through Facebook you do a lot of other things with acting and singing and things. Oh yeah. Uh, so it's our. I'm always happy to see your poems uh, when they appear, and this was a really moving one. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you were writing about? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, the article that inspired it was an article about 
these geologists have been studying um, basically geological events over millions of years. And what they found is that, um, you know, there's kind of a pattern to it. So every so many millions of years, kind of these same things, they don't seem random. Mm -hmm. It's just like a cycle that the earth goes through. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, they described it as intermittently catastrophic, which was interesting to me. Um, and my father actually passed away over a month ago now. Um, we had a very strained relationship and went through a lot of bad things. So it was, I couldn't figure out how I wanted to write about that. And so this seemed like this intermittent cat catastrophe kind of seemed like a good metaphor to take and write about. And it's Father's Day today, so mm -hmm. it seemed very timely to me. So yeah. that's what Yeah, well, I'm so sorry to hear about, about the loss of your dad and, uh, and, and you know, the, the relationship. I, I, I sort of, I don't know, in a similar place with my dad, he's going to pass away at some point soon. And I don't think we're going to get the closure or anything. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's, if it's, I don't know, it's a difficult situation always. Um, do you want to, do you want to read the poem? Intermittently catastrophic? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, I did add a couple of things cause I'm <laughs> incessantly editing. Okay. So it's different than it was. Um, okay. So it's called intermittently catastrophic. Before he died, his voice carried me outside like the knife of a coyote breath on gosling neck. I did not recognize myself there a thicket of torn shirts, blood, and dirt, but it came. Sat with him beside the tree that opened our house like a wound in 1995. The quiet moved between us, the slow wind of extinction. I wanted to tell him what geologists were saying. Earth has a pulse. It isn't chance, the tectonic shifts, lava weeping over the scarred land. It's millions of years waiting for our open palms like kisses, the kind that ache you into a glacial freeze. It's the eventual melt, the shards of continents reimagined like horoscopes, intermittently catastrophic. Just what happens? You hurt me, I told him, and the words felt like every horizon, the sun coming in like a seed wilting into memory. Look, he said, pointing to himself, and I saw it. I saw my father swallowed by the volcanic bloom of a thousand weeping flowers. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Bailey. A, a really moving poem and an interesting article that inspired it, too, and combining the, the two things together. Thanks for writing that and, and coming on and sharing it. All right. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah it's always a pleasure. All right. Bye. <laughs> that was uh, Bailey McClelland with Intermittently Catastrophic. Um, now let's uh, go to this week last year. Um, of course, yesterday was Juneteenth. And this week last year, we um, published this poem by Yvonne about Juneteenth. Um, and the news story was here. Let me, I'm going to just put this up on screen, too. Um, this was a news story we were writing about. There we go. And... Um, uh, observing Juneteenth, a march to the art museum, a fashion show, Juneteenth. And, and it, it was talking about um, one of the things that it mentions here is the possibility and the hope of making this a federal holiday, which of course happened this year. Um, so this was the article that Yvonne was writing about. Um, Yvonne um, grew up across the street and still lives across the street from Malcolm X Park. 
Um, and the incidents, incidents in the poem are true and one of many in a verse memoir in progress that deals with the microaggressions ordinary black folks experience every day. Uh, the new story attached uh, presents even broader implications. And uh, that work in progress, I'm not sure, I, I haven't checked back in with Yvonne since this. It's called Historic Preservation, so uh, see if, if she's finished with that. And so here's Yvonne reading this poem about Malcolm X Park. Malcolm X Park, in honor of Juneteenth 2020, is followed by this footnote. After the urban turmoil of the 60s summers, Black Oak Park on the western edge of University City in Philadelphia was renamed Malcolm X Park with a bandstand for music, drama, and preachers. In 2019, it became the focal point for the city's annual Juneteenth celebrations. Malcolm X Park. Curbed, a dark bronze matron of the hunt held in check a wound-up spike-aired runt in her left fist and in her right, two docile, one colossal breeze. A motley crew. You babysit dogs, I winked and presumed while rush-hour wheels of all sorts zoomed by us, five commoners on foot. No, all mine. How multicultural, I thought. Then twelve paws sprang, two clogs in tight pursuit for the park. Encounters like this uproot old superstitions. Black folks do this, white folks do that. No household pooch had we. The bright heart mother mourned in her youth's moody land died from chicken bones. Some strange evil hand. Grown and wed, she had no scraps to spare, no loss fed. Besides, landlords hated pets, sometimes a kid. Once, a park-bound teen, I babysat sis, terrified. Doberman teeth lunged. I spat. Is he untied? Nope. A benched slack rope. His porcelain mistress, greener grass on her mind, sighed oblivious. Nevertheless, the park turned with the world. Gone with the wind, bright tiny flowers swirled, jazz, gospel, hip-hop planted in their place. Planted? Well, even the bard now has space. And that was uh, Yvonne once again with Malcolm X Park from Historic Preservation, a, a novel or a memoir in progress. Um, and uh, you can check out Yvonne at a uh, website is, um, I'll show you, this is uh, Yvonne's website, Iwilla, I-W-I-L-L-A dot com. So check that out and see if, um, I don't see, those are three books there. I don't see that this one's finished yet, um, but she's had poems recently in the American Journal of Poetry and other places. So uh, that's Yvonne there. Uh, check out her new work at some point when he can. Let's see, we have uh, eight minutes. What do we have time for? Let's do, um, I'll do another old poem. We'll see uh, what was going on this week. Maybe, eh, let's do this week, uh, 2015. 
And uh, this week, 2015, we had Patrick Ryan Frank, Landscape with Questions. And of this poem, Patrick says, um, Since Wednesday's massacre at a South Carolina church, I've been trying to figure out what to say. I find that I'm asking myself the same questions I've been asking for too long, and I still don't have any satisfying answers. So instead of addressing that attack or any other event directly, since I still haven't fully, can't fully fathom it, I'm trying to look at the bigger, even stranger landscape in which it happened. Um, and let's read this poem. This is Landscape with Questions after another. See, I don't even remember which shooting this was that he was referring to. I mean, it's so hard to keep track, and this was uh, six years ago. But Landscape with Questions by Patrick Ryan Frank. Another minivan abandoned off the off-ramp. Someone said, I've had enough and left, just left, and left the radio on and singing, baby, baby, you're the one. And who is it that when there is no one there, God, like everybody else, is scared of everybody else and trying to hide. So smoke, so black-winged drones, so, so much light at such strange angles that make the empty hand look full, look like a fist. Look out at the land. It isn't barren, so why does it feel so bare? The churches are full of people, so are the bars, and life's work of the dead. So which lives matter? Ask the glass and blacktop. You'll get no answer. And that was uh, the poem from June 21st, 2015, Landscape with Questions by Patrick Ryan Frank. And you can find Patrick Ryan Frank. Let's see if his website is still going. And there he is, Patrick Ryan Frank at uh, PatrickRyanFrank.com. Okay, so let's see. Uh, let's do the Psyku for this week, and then we'll go on to Win Cooper, this week's guest. Um, now, my Psyku, where I put it, um, was based on. See, I really find um, the whole idea of belief in science kind of annoying. Uh, first of all, science is a system of inquiry; it's not a system of belief. But then, second of all, you get articles like these, and usually when I look through articles. You know, a lot of times I find interesting things that I like and find compelling, but sometimes you find just nonsense. And this was published in JAMA Network Open, um, and the, the press release is from UT Health San Antonio, where the researchers were. Let me show you this. Um, team describes science-based hiccups intervention. And so, of course, <laughs> I mean, uh, science-based hiccups intervention sounds such a, it sounds kind of like truthiness or something. I mean, it, it's just a, a goofy way to say um, hey, this looks scientific, doesn't it? And then the uh, intervention, if you look at this, is basically a straw with a small hole. <laughs> that's, that's all it is. It's made to look like it's more fancy, but it's hollow inside. They say that there's a pressure valve in the bottom, but you would get the same effect from drinking out of a uh, cocktail straw or something, you know? And then they go into um, talking about how important it is um, to cure hiccups and... Um, how this simple tool uses suction that stimulates the phrenic and vagus nerves. They try to make it sound scientific. Um, forceful suction induces the diaphragm, a sheaf of muscles that inflates the lungs. You know, they, they go on and on. But all you're doing is sucking hard into something. And um, maybe sucking hard into a straw cures the hiccups. But then for user feedback for this study, they, um, 
they sent this to six, if you look at the actual study in JAMA, they sent this, uh, these straws to 600 people and um, to, to test out who, people who say they have hiccups regularly. And um, of those 600, 249 replied to the survey. So there you go. There's a big self-selection bias first. And then what did the survey ask? Um, the survey asked if, um, your, if this straw that they invented was um, uh, worked better than home remedies that are already not working for you. So there's, <laughs> there's like the, the, the entire experimental design is made to uh, make this show some positive results. And, of course, given this setup given the self-selection bias, because you wouldn't reply to the survey if you didn't think it worked, right? Um, so everybody who, uh, 92%, I think they said, of people who answered the survey said it worked better than their home remedies. And they're just using this to uh, sell. In, in the article, it mentions that they already um, have a contract to sell these with a grocery store. I think it was in Colorado. So this uh, this is the uh, the way science, believe science. Um, <laughs> and a team describes science-based hiccups intervention. And um, so it, it reminded me, though, of um, you know trying to do home remedies and how they always work. So this is my psyche for the week uh, to go along with this. And I, I meant to mention, too, you know, this was published in JAMA Open Network. Imagine a literary journal with a 30% acceptance rate where uh, once you're, you have a poem accepted, you have to pay $3,000 to uh, have it published. And that's how, that's how these... Uh, open open access journals work. They're pay to play, and um, you can just use them to make press releases, basically. That's what this, what, what was done here. Um, but it reminded me of um, how, how we go through and try to do, you know, cures when my kids have the hiccups or whatever. And uh, this is how it goes. This is my psyche for the day. Then we'll go over to uh, Wynn Cooper. We finally found the cure for hiccup. We finally found the cure for hiccup. That is our psyche for the day, and um, it is now time to go over to Win Cooper and uh, today's featured guest. So bear with me for just a minute, and uh, I'm going to go to break, and we'll be on with Win Cooper, who's a poet that I've admired for a long time. Really looking forward to talking to him. Uh, so we will see you momentarily after I take a little break and get connected with him. And we're back. Thanks, everybody, for your patience. I'm here with Wynn Cooper. Uh, Wynn has a poem. It's a, the perfect poem for Father's Day, Smoke, in uh, the summer issue of Rattle. Wynn Cooper has published five books of poetry, most recently Mars Poetica, which is right here. I'll put it up on screen really quick. Um, Mars Poetica. And um, his poem stories, essays, and reviews have appeared in Poetry, Plowshares, Agni, The Southern Review, Five Points, Slate, and more than 100 other magazines. In 1993, Fun, a poem from his first book, was turned into Sheryl Crow's Grammy-winning song, All I Want to Do. Cooper has taught at the University of Utah, Bennington College, Marlboro College, and at the Frost Place. He's a former editor of Quarterly West and the recipient of a fellowship from the U-Cross Foundation. Um, he also worked at the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute, a think tank run by the Poetry Foundation. He lives in Boston. Joining us here uh, from Somerville, Massachusetts is Wynn Cooper. Hello, Wynn. How are you doing today? Hi, Tim. How's it going? It's going Thanks. great, yeah. So uh, do you want to start us out with a poem? Sure. 
I thought I would start with the title poem from my most recent book, Mars Poetica. Here it is. Imagine you're on Mars, looking at Earth, a swirl of colors in the distance. Tell us what you miss most or least. Let your feelings rise to the surface. Skim that surface with a tiny net. Now you're getting the hang of it. Tell your story slantwise, streetwise, in the disguise of an astronaut in his suit. Tell us something we didn't know before, how words mean things we didn't know we knew. And that's a great poem, um, you know, Ars Poetica type poem, um, explaining you know what poetry does and what poetry means. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking about that in a little bit, but I think we should get the the fun out of the way. Because um, I know you're, you're probably you probably are tired of talking about this poem and what happened, but I but I think I am I've been dying to know you know your side of that story for since I heard about it. Um, so so how how did um, how did fun and, and all I want to do by Cheryl Crow come to be? I, the story I've read or heard is that um, the person she was writing it with found your a copy of your book in a used bookstore in Pasadena. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what's apocryphal or what's true. What, what was it like from your perspective? Um, well, I wrote the poem Fun in 1984 when I was a graduate student at the University of Utah, and it was published in my first book, which came out in 1987, called The Country of Here Below. And I had never seen my book in a bookstore. It was a small press. Uh, five, uh, 500 uh, copies were printed. And somehow, when Sheryl Crow was making her first album in Pasadena in Bill Bottrell's studio called Toad Hall, um, they didn't like the words that she had written to one of the songs that they had the music for. And so they took a break, and Bill and Kevin Gilbert, the keyboard player, um, went around the corner to Cliff's Books and were going through some poetry books looking for inspiration. They found my book. They found that poem in the book. They bought the used copy for a couple dollars, brought it back to the studio, handed the book to Cheryl and said, you know, sing this if, if it works. And she did, and it worked. They had been looking for lyrics that were a little more about the seamy underbelly of society to fit in with some of the songs that were already on the record. Um, and this one worked. They took six lines out of my poem and added the chorus in because the poem didn't take place on Santa Monica Boulevard. There was no car wash. I wrote it in Salt Lake City. Um, I made it up. <laughs> So that's how that came to be. And then I got a phone call saying, we want to use your, a song we made from your poem on this album by Sheryl Crow, and we'll pay you for it. And I thought, and I do, I really did think this. I thought at the time, oh, you can just have it. I, I'm just so happy that somebody found my book in a bookstore and read this poem and liked it enough to make it into a song that, you know, it's all yours. And then, unfortunately, I didn't think that, or I didn't say that. Um, and anyway, that's how that came to be. Um, the record executive uh, liked the, some of the people in the band didn't like the song that much, but the guy that was running uh, A&M Records at the time loved it. He called it the country disco song. 
And the rec her record didn't do that well. Um, they released several other singles first that just they did okay, but not that well. And then when really they released that song as a single, her record really took off, and she took off. So that's how it came to be. Did you have any idea that? I mean, I think at the time Cheryl Crow was like just a regular. You know, she wasn't anybody anybody knew, and there was no conception of her being coming famous. Right? It, it wasn't. It, was it a surprise to you? Or yeah, you know? oh, it was a total surprise to me because I knew enough about rock and roll and the record industry to know that, you know, thousands of albums are made every year and most of them go nowhere. And so I didn't really expect it to. And I couldn't be objective enough about the song, listening to it, to decide if I thought it would take off or not. Yeah. Um, and there was just no way of knowing. No, she was not well known. She had been a backup singer for Michael Jackson and Bob Dylan and a few other people, but she had never made a record. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Did you say, did she have the chorus ahead of time or did she add that after the fact? Because I think that, it, what's that? Yeah. yeah, they added that in. They but but that. did she have that before she found the poem or did she add that based on the poem? Do you know? Oh, well, they might have had the music for mm -hmm. it and they had yeah. the words that she had written. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have, I don't think that I know of, they didn't have, you know, we want to write a song that has the sun comes up on Santa Monica Boulevard. Uh -huh. You know, I, I really doubt that they had that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just so interesting that the, what I always found interesting about that, about that poem is the juxtaposition, which is something that comes up in poetry a lot, you know, mm -hmm. where you have the, the, the rhythm of the poem and then the the song is so different and the and the feel of the chorus is so different and the, and the it's the combination of the two that make it work i think and um so that's right. just interesting to hear um but before i even heard that story and knew about you i um i i, was, I love postcards from the interior I, I was in a thing where who was the editor at boa when you were what's his name um uh, Tom Ward. Yeah, yeah. When Tom Ward was the editor of Boa, I just loved Boa so much from, you know, Lee Young Lee and Bob Hickok and Dorian Lux. And so mm -hmm. I just bought tons of books from Boa. And one of the books I bought was Postcards from the Interior. And um, mm -hmm. I just love that book. Um, it's one of my favorite books. Um, so it, it, and then it was really weird to hear that that you were the that Cheryl Crow song that everybody knows, which is interesting too. Um, right. But but so so talk a little bit about um, how you became a poet and and what drove you to um, into poetry in the first place. Um, I wrote a poem in fifth grade that was published in we believe it or not had a school paper at my elementary school. They published the poem there. A few people liked it. I mean, I was in fifth grade. And, you know, I got kind of patted on the back for that. And I, so I just kept going. I kept writing poems. When I was in eighth grade, um, I wrote a poem about the death of my mother, who is still very much alive at 97 today. Um, and I gave him, I was going out with a girl who was in seventh grade. I know this sounds ridiculous, but I gave her the poem. She gave it to her mother who worked at WXYZ, a big radio station in Detroit. She gave it to the morning DJ who read it on the air. And I was at school that day, so I didn't hear the guy read it on the air, but my mom did. And I got home from school that day and she said, so I'm dead, huh? <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? She said, I heard your poem on the radio. And I became kind of a nervous wreck, thinking, oh, God, she's going to kill me. 
And she said, I'm so proud of you. And so, you know, there was that as well. And then in high school, I published some poems in a college literary magazine. And in college, I started studying creative writing. I had some really good teachers. Um, I just kept going. That, that's that. Yeah, that's such a great story. I mean, both of those too. Um, so, so um, what do your what does your family think about you being a poet? Is that is that the general um, just for the whole the whole way? They're just happy to, um, or do they? Do you ever have any problems with people finding themselves in poems? Uh, no, I don't. I write very few poems about my own life. Um, fun is a good example of that. I did not drink beer at bars <laughs> at noon on Tuesday. Um, or live near Santa Monica Boulevard, um, although I do go to the car wash pretty often. Um, I, I don't know what, what, how to answer that question, honestly, Tim. I'm sorry. It kind of caught me by surprise. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, um, let, let's just hear some more poems. Uh, what do you want okay. to read next? Um, I want to read another poem from my newest book, and for some unknown reason, I have written a lot of poems about fashion. I still do not understand that. Um, so I'd like to read this one. It's called The Next New Thing. It's also maybe a little bit about the fashion of poetry, I suppose. Oh, the next which, new... page, which page is that on? Oh, sorry. It's on page 23 of Mars Poetica. Gotcha. Okay. Okay? Yep. Darling of couture, petri dish of fashion, Tell me which way the mistral blows today, toward the cuts of Milan or the billows of Paris, the stark New York style or the bright hues of Rio. What's in the air for fall? Charity or schadenfreude? A toned down boho look? Please know I'm going insane with desire for the next new thing, style that won't come back. That was uh, the next new thing from Mars Poetica. Um, <laughs> we've seen two poems of yours so far, and, and you, really you get a, a sense of your style already from these two poems that you shared, which is uh, which what, I, what I loved about it. What I loved about Postcards from uh, the Interior um, and Chaos is a New Calm, which is another BOA book that I really enjoyed when it came out. Um, and, mm. and that's you have these um, very concise, um, very imaginative, but but very um, e economically composed poems. There, there, a lot happens in very few lines. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, what, what is your philosophy about, about poetry? Uh, what are you trying to, to do? Like, like, how do you approach it? Oh, boy. You ask some tough questions, Tim. <laughs> well, how that's what we're I here for. Um, I write poems that are longer than the ones that appear in print. I do a lot of cutting. Um, I didn't used to do this, but I do now. Any word that doesn't seem like exactly the right word, I pick up the thesaurus, or now I use the online thesaurus, and I think of, I go through every word that might possibly fit, both in terms of its meaning, but especially in terms of its sound, because I am as much concerned about the sound of my poems as about anything else. Um, I also try to engage the senses, I try to use colors, I try to use sounds, I try to put smells in sometimes so that a reader feels, has more things to latch onto. There's more in the poem that, that they can grasp 
and become part of that poem. Um, as I said, I don't really write poems about my own life um, or use people that I know in my poems, but um, the poems are kind of about the inner life. Are more they're more about consciousness. They're more about what goes in goes on in my brain, and about what might be going on in other people's brains. And I'm trying to make that connection between people, between states of consciousness, between the different worlds that we all inhabit. I guess that's mm -hmm. that's what I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Um, um, well, let's just hear another poem. Let's keep going. <laughs> okay. Well, since you talked about the postcard poems, um, let me read one of those. I'll just tell you quickly how I came to write these. Um, I had a former student from Marlboro College where I used to teach, a now unfortunately defunct college. After he graduated, he became the temporary editor of a literary magazine called West Branch um, in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And he received like five different postcard poems from different poets all over the country in the same week and thought, well, this is, this is weird. And so he contacted all the poets that he knew and asked us all if we would write a postcard poem so that he could fill an entire issue of the magazine with postcard poems. And I said, well, you know, what do you mean by a postcard poem? And he said, just write something about someone quirky or something quirky in the place that you live, which at that time was Hall a little very little town called Halifax, Vermont. So I ended up writing a two-page prose poem about the many, many quirky things and quirky people in Halifax, Vermont. And it was so much fun and so easy to write that I just kept going. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, I sent him five postcard poems and he published all of them. And I just kept going. I just kept writing poems from different places in Vermont and then from different parts of our country and then different parts of the world until I had, you know, a hundred poems. I don't usually write that much, but this was really, really took off. Um, and then... Uh, I started, I wanted to expand on that. I wanted to write more, more poems that weren't just from places. So I started writing poems that were from states of consciousness, moods, um, things like that. Um, and I, by then I think I had 200 poems. Oh, wow. Which is kind of insane. Um, over the, a period of a couple years. And so then I just narrowed it down to my 50 favorite poems sent off the manuscript and it got taken. And I've gone around to many schools in the country and given an exercise on how to write the very basic way to write a postcard poem, which isn't necessarily how I wrote those, but for students, college students, I've done it with a lot of high school students. It's very, it makes it very easy for them to write a poem. Um, and I even had a teacher, Brian Mooney, at the Putney School in Vermont, who had all of his students write postcard poems on postcards and then mail them to me. And so it was a summer program. And every summer I would get all these postcards. Oh, that's great. From these high school students. And I still have, I, I think, I hope all of them or at least most of them. So that's how, how that came to be. 
long story. Yeah, no, that's great. And and maybe I, I just say, I, I think the what I love most maybe about the book is the concept of it, because I feel like that's what poetry is, is that mm-hmm. every, every poem is kind of a postcard from the interior, you know, <laughs> it, it's a way of, of sending a message out from the inner life into the outer world. And, um, and, and it's just such a great definition of poetry. And as you move through the poems, to, you know, some to from real places and, and some for from concepts and mental states. Um, it's just such a cool way to construct a book and to think about poetry, which is what I always loved about this book. Uh, and, and it's so creative. There's di- so many different ways that you go about tackling this sort of concept. Um, mm-hmm. And the great thing, too, about postcards is that they have uh, an addressee. You know, there's somebody you're sending that to, which makes the voice do something interesting. Um, you know, and, and it's, you know, people talk about the voice in poetry, uh, but the voice is kind of always speaking to somebody I feel. Um, you know, I think every poem that works, there's some, even maybe if it's subconscious, maybe there, there's somebody that the poet's talking to. And, uh, and that sort of pulls that to the surface and makes the voice work really well. I think this concept, especially for, for people, as you mentioned, who are, um, doing writing projects and things like that. It's a good way to think about a poem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I just love the way this is put together. And there's great examples of, uh, postcard poems here. Right. I always thought of, uh, you know, I, I very rarely thought of them as, being written to a specific person, but I did think of them as being written to a reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was kind of the key, I think. Um, one of my teachers in graduate school was Mark Strand, um, great poet, obviously. And on the first day of the first workshop that he taught, um, he said, my name is Mark Strand, blah, as if we didn't know who he was, um, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then he said, I only ask one thing of all of you, just don't bore me. And every day when I sit down to write, I think of that line from him. And so I thought of that in the postcards, too. I want to, you know, find the color and the interest in these different places and these different states of, of mind um, and get that across to a reader. And always, th- I was always thinking of the reader that it was addressed to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's maybe why they were part of why they worked. Yeah. So yeah, I think so. Well, let's see. This is postcard from Halifax. You were going to read. Oh, that's it's very long. I will read it. Oh, um, did you want to read something different? Um. Yeah. Let me. I would thought I would just read a few shorter ones. Oh, sure. That's yeah. Whatever, whatever you want to read. Um, it is. It is really quite long. <laughs> Um, so let me read the shortest poem in the book is on page 15. It's called postcard from green river, which is a little village just down the road from Halifax. And this is one of the few poems that will actually fit on a postcard, uh, postcard from green river. The church towers over the village like a God. Imagine that only three of the residents are bad. No one knows the word for loud. Yeah, that's a great, great little poem. And um, here's one that Garrison Keillor read on the Writer's Almanac many, many years ago. And a woman also made a film about this parking lot in Brattleboro, Vermont. And so she had me read the poem and then and put my reading of the poem in the film. Postcard from Harmony Parking Lot. The teens have gathered because they are teens. They wear brown shirts, faded to beige, black boots, low-slung jeans. The way they stand is called jaunty. 
Cigarettes burn through their words. Smoke blows through their hair. And the way they stare at passers-by blends reptile with bird, spleen with wonder, your past with their present to you. And that was Postcard from Harmony, parking lot from Postcards from the Interior. I think you should read one of the longer ones, actually, because I think you know okay. th- th- those poems really work, too, but in a different kind of way than the yeah. uh, shorter ones. Okay. Um, it'd be nice to share one of those, I think. Okay, sure. And, and um, while, you, while you think about that, let me just say that if everybody has any questions for Win Cooper, um, I'm watching the chat windows on YouTube and Facebook. So feel free to ask a question, which I can pass along. But, uh, but let's do one of the longer ones in this. Okay, you betcha. This is postcard from Searsburg, which is on page 16. Okay. Um, Searsburg is a very, very small town in Vermont that has giant windmills on top of the mountain where the, where the town is. And I just drove through there not long ago. And the, the, one of the strange things about Searsburg is Pete, there are many people up there who write slogans either on the sides of their houses or they write big signs with usually very conservative uh, statements on them. It, it's I've never seen any place like it. Um, it's, it's kind of disturbing, honestly, but uh, it is yeah. really, really a trip. So this it has a little bit to do with that. Postcard from Searsburg. What was it you wanted? He calls out the door as I walk toward his house, which tilts uphill. I just wanted to ask, I start to say, but he cuts me off, tells me he doesn't talk to strangers, says that I should go away. I tell him I like his old car. I name the year and model. And soon he is shaking my hand, inviting me in for home-brewed beer. After my second and his who-knows-how-many pints, he tells me he's ready for the government when they come. He takes me down to the cellar, filled with enough food for years, calendars for the coming one, enough water for about a month. He shows me the vegetables he's growing under lights, but I can't see them. I swirl out the door like the windmills we watched from his den, 10 spinning, one broken. I stand in his driveway and feel them, their slow whipping roar. The town's elevation is unmatched, except by a few of its people, higher than kites from the slogans they write on the outsides of their dwellings which no wind has managed to blow down. That was Postcard from Searsburg, from Postcards from the Interior, uh, from Boa back in 2005, I think, that uh, that book came out. Yep, um, that's do, do you want? I'm curious about um, your work at the Harriet Monroe Foundation, or the, what was it called, the Harriet Monroe Institute. Is that what it was called? Yeah, Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute. Oh, Poetry Institute, yeah. A, a think tank run by Poetry Foundation. I didn't realize they had a think tank until I read that. So so what is what do you do at a think tank for the Poetry <laughs> Foundation? <laughs> uh, you get paid very well to think about poetry. Um, well, well, how do you get that job, I guess, is the, is the next question. <laughs> I'd like to get paid to think about poetry. <laughs> um, the project that we 
undertook um, under the direction of Catherine Coles. She picked a bunch of people in the poetry world, Robert Pinsky, uh, Lewis Hyde, Fiona McRae, um, a bunch of people, a bunch of wonderful, very smart people who like to think. Um, and we did a pro we wrote a, a, a little book about poetry and new media, um, how poets could um, not get recognition and potentially get paid as well for putting poetry into new media. Uh, because of my experience combining poetry and music, um, I got hired. Um, so I, I wrote a bit about that. Um, we looked at other art forms and how they were represented in media and how those artists were credited um, and then applied that to poetry. So it was kind of a guide mm -hmm. for people on how to deal with poetry in new media. Um, and it was took about two years. It was it was a great project and, yeah. and a great pleasure for me to be part of it. Yeah. So, so what do you think poetry's role is in, in moving forward through new media? I mean, since you've spent two years thinking about it, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think um, I don't know. The thing about poetry that I love, or, or one of the things anyway, is that it, it's it's so um, so simple and pure, and and you know, it's just the poet's voice and the words regulating your breath, kind of. <laughs> And um, and that there's no money in it also keeps it pure. Like there's this pureness that I like love. And then you know, but then of course we want to we want to have an audience and and you know make money and have a career somehow. Right. Um, so how do you how do you um, think about those two together? Um, you know. Um, well, I also believe that poetry is a very pure art form. And I prefer to read poetry in books. I do not like to read poetry online, but there is so much poetry online that it's just unbelievable. And so, you know, whenever I think of, you know, I sort of remember that Robert Bly poem about such and such, and I look it up and I can usually find it online, which is just wonderful. It's just an amazing resource. Um, another thing that I've noticed, and you obviously have noticed, is poets posting their poems on Facebook. Um, you know, they get a poem in a magazine or in a book, and they take a picture of it, mm -hmm. of the poem on the page, and then they post it on Facebook. And that's how I discover so many new poets, or poets I haven't heard of, or I keep track of um, poets that I know. And this is the newest poem they wrote that's published in such and such a magazine, and they're putting it on Facebook um, or on Twitter, which I don't I don't like Twitter. It's just such an ugly interface. Um, and there's just so many things about Twitter that I don't like. A lot of things about Facebook I don't like. Don't get me wrong. Um, but just the Internet in general and being able to find poems on the Internet is so wonderful and gives so many more people exposure and that's really wonderful because, you know, back in the day, um, you'd publish a poem in a magazine and, you know, even in a good magazine and only a thousand people would see it if you were lucky because that was how many people subscribed. You know, you run this wonderful magazine that has a huge number of subscribers, I think about 10,000. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, yeah. and when you published my poem, Smoke, earlier this month, I got emails from people I didn't know 
telling me that they loved that poem. That's just like an incredible thing <laughs> to happen. Yeah, um, yeah, that's and, the greatest thing. I mean, anytime anybody tells me that, that's the thing that I love to hear that that people right. actually write to the poets uh, that that right. as they appear and 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 so many people say that. It's just a wonderful, uh, mm-hmm. the the most important feedback, really. But I'm so glad that you said that about the sharing poems online because I was just what was I reading? Um, there, I was reading some article somewhere, and I'm drawing a blank on it. But they were talking about um, how a novelist would never put up with having their, you know, you know, excerpts from their novels um, be online. There'd be copyright strike, and you know, you'd you'd have <laughs> cease and desist letters. And right. uh, and, and, and the the context was that it somehow devalues poetry by having mm-hmm. it so freely accessible and having like um, those websites that just repost poems. Um, right. and people sharing them on Facebook, like, a, like, you know, right. um, Stephen King would never put his whole book on his blog or something was kind of the idea because it has value. And so poetry doesn't have value because of that was kind of the argument. And, um, and, and I just completely disagree. I, I think that, that poetry is meant to be shared. It's this conversation we're all having with each other. And so the mm-hmm. more we can encourage people to share things on social media, the better. So when people take a, uh, a screenshot of a poem they like from Rattle and, and put it out. You know, I don't feel like, um, you know, nobody's going out to buy the issue because of that. Quite the opposite. I think people might go buy the issue because they saw that poem. So, so um, I love it when things are shared and uh, I'm glad you do too. Cause it, I think it's a really important part of the whole, what we're doing, what everybody's doing. Right. Well, you know, the, the controversial place that publishes so many poems is called poem hunter. And I'm sure, you know, as much about it as anybody, um, and they publish poems without your permission. Uh, and they have ads on their website. So they're making money. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, probably not very much. Um, but they are, in a way, making money off people's poems without their permission. And I've talked to many poets about this to find out how they feel about it. Because when I first discovered it and discovered that they had you know, 20 of my poems on their website, but they had never asked me if that was okay i was not not a happy poet and then i talked to several people and several you know really well-known poets um who most of whom said they think it's great Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. as long as the poems are accurately reprinted um and that does not always happen and the thing that irritates me is there are some poems by other people that have my name on them oh really how that happens and those are not my favorite poems that are listed. Yeah. Well, poems. I'm sure you could write to them and have those taken off. I mean, I probably could. Yeah, I think you know it's a negative. What do they call it? I can't remember the phrase for it. But but you know they post it until somebody tells them to take it down, and so right. um, like implied right. permission or something right. um, under fair use. Uh, which I, I think that's a that's a fine system actually, um, but but the thing is that like you mentioned before, people much prefer reading poems on paper and books. I think still, mm. there's something about um, the the stillness and lack of ads, you know, and lack of um, right. th- there's a space that a book creates that you can't do even on a phone that looks or a tablet that looks kind of like a book, because you mm. like your brain is somehow attuned to being used to being interrupted. You know, when you're on some kind of screen, and I don't think people people appreciate stuff nearly as much, um, you know, on websites or in apps and things as they do in actual books still. And I think the data bears that out, at least for poetry, maybe for for other mediums where you're, you know, trying to get information and not an experience. It might be different, but I think (laughs) um, I think anything that things are shared 
um, draws people to books. So I think that's a really important thing to be to be sharing. And I'm, I'm always happy when it when it happens. Right. And when you're reading a book, you're less likely to be distracted by something else. If you're reading a poem on your phone or on your computer, suddenly you get a, a message from fate messenger or something, and then you're, you might not even finish reading the poem. And that just, it, it's, too, it's too distracting to be reading poems on screens, I think. Um, it's better to just go away from your phone, go away from your computer, sit in a chair in the corner in the dark with your with a book of poems and uh i i do that all the time and it it kind of it, it has made the pandemic um easier to deal with mm-hmm. by by reading a lot in books and because there's been it's been such a hard time for all of us that when you're on your computer you just want to what do they call it um doom scrolling doom scroll. yeah that was our word of the week last week here yeah doom scrolling uh, and it's funny because a lot of people have told me that the when the pandemic started, they were no longer able to read books. Mm-hmm. Partly, I assume, because they were too anxious, too stressed out, and they couldn't concentrate long enough on a book. I found that I read more. I've read more novels. Uh, I've just read more in general in books. Mm-hmm. Um, than than I did before the pandemic because it was an escape from reality um, and just going back to a world where people were wearing masks was just such a relief and I think it you know kept me mentally balanced yeah Um, and and it didn't do that for other a lot of I wish that more people had picked up books let's just put it that way Mm -hmm. during the pandemic I think that you know their lives might have been a little more balanced and um, just a little more peaceful but we'll just Save my advice for the next pandemic. Yeah, it's just it's it's so hard because there's um, you know, so much um, you know, psychological. It's just a trap, you know, like it's a casino trap that that people follow, and a book doesn't have that, which is the beauty of a book. But then, <laughs> but then you don't get the same draw, and so yeah. you, people just don't know what they're missing. I think is is what the bottom line is. Right. Um, but let, let's do a couple more poems. What do you want to read next? We got to keep the, the poems coming or the, the uh, yeah, audience yeah, gets upset. Um, let me read the last postcard poem. Um, it's called Postcard from the Party. Now that parties are starting up again, um, seems like the right poem to read. Postcard from the Party. You have to be invited and there's nothing you can do to be asked. Headlines and bloodlines don't help. It's a long way from home, but I'm here. The view much better than I'm used to. How did this happen? Dumb but good luck, right place and time, the planets aligned. No contract, no deadline, no risk. And what did I do to deserve this? Slept with all the wrong people, Gambled too much on friends of friends with light bulbs over their heads. Wrote every day, no matter what. And that's postcard from the party, from postcards yep. from the interior. Um, yep. So Gordon Coppola asks, I think we kind of already touched on this, but he he loves your your brevity or your concision, as he calls it, mm-hmm. and he asks if um if um that's more of an element of your process or does it develop in the editing phase? And I think that's where you're talking about trimming down. Like you, so a poem mm-hmm. like that, a postcard from the party, I don't know if you remember writing it, 
but was it was it like a long poem that that became that short poem do you know do you remember that poem was one of those few poems that just came from from above and mm-hmm. and I revised almost not at all um it's it's rare very rare <laughs> for that to happen as I'm sure you know but um Normally, as I said earlier, I yeah, we did c- cover that a little bit. Um, I write longer poems and then just keep trimming and trimming and trimming. Um, and one of the ways I do that is by reading them out loud over and over and over again. And that's when you start to see that maybe you don't need that word right there, that that can, word can be replaced by a line break, let's say. Um, and so they just get shorter and shorter. Uh, I'm, also, I'm in a poetry workshop um, with three other great poets and they're always suggesting trimming things Mm -hmm. and they're very often right. Um, so that's another way that I, that I trim the poems. Um, but I think it just has to do with trying to make the poem as perfect as possible. And I think that a lot of people overwrite, I think that I used to overwrite. And when I go back and read some of my early poems, I wish that I had, cut a little of the fat off of them and that would have made them better poems. Um, but the problem with writing concise, sh- generally short poems is that it's made it really hard for me to write long poems anymore. And I just, every time I start a poem, I think, oh, I hope this is two pages. Um, I just almost never go on to that second page. Um, and another thing that kept me writing brief poems was my third book chaos is the new calm is entirely 14 line poems Mm -hmm. um there's a phrase that's used a lot in contemporary poetry of loose sonnets um and they are pretty loose because very few of them follow um the sonnet rules um but they're all 14 lines and they all kind of work in the way that sonnets work um, and I'd be happy to read a couple of those if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Uh, let's do that. But but first, before you do, let's. Um, I wanted to ask if what is it that draws you to to the short poem? Is it that thing that Mark Strand said about not boring the reader? Do you feel like <laughs> longer poems bore you as a reader yourself? Do you like reading longer poems, or because um, I find myself drawn to short poems? I think for that reason, because right. a short poem. I mean, there's just no time to be bored. If it's a good poem, you can't right. be kicked out of it. You know. Y- Right. you're into it and it's like instantaneous gratification i mean maybe it's more like a facebook <laughs> you know with that with that quick uh, reward right. but um but 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 you're never bored in a, in a short poem is that what draws it for you or, or i think that is i honestly think that's a lot of it i think that our attention spans get shorter and shorter as the years go by not just from aging but just from the way our society is and you know 140 characters in a twitter post and all of that um ridiculous stuff i think that's a lot of it Uh, but if a poem is good i don't care how long it is Mm -hmm. um my favorite poem is probably four quartets by t.s Eliot, and that takes a little bit more than an hour to read if you don't stop at all and think about what he's what he has written um but yeah the, the concision is de- definitely you are absolutely right keeps you from being bored yeah so okay so so what do you want to read from from that chaos is okay. the new con uh, i want to read the title poem and then maybe a couple more of them yeah that'd be good okay chaos is the new calm 
The book is called that, the poem is called that, and the first line is that. Chaos is the new calm, violence the new balm, to be spread on lips unused to a kiss. Left is the new right, as I brace for a fight with a man who stands on his remaining hand. Fetid harbor, harbor me until someone is free to drive me away from what happened today. Don't strand me standing here. If you leave, leave beer. I just love that last line. <laughs> I know it kind of makes me thirsty, but it's a little, it's a little early for a beer. Um, and this is a poem. This is one of my favorite poems. Um, it's called Reading Parker. And it's called that for two reasons. Um, it's about a trip. It's sort of about a trip that my wife and I took to France. And her last name is Parker. Um, but also uh, there is a wine critic named Robert Parker. He's probably the most famous wine critic. And he comes up with some pretty ridiculous phrases to describe wine. And so one day I was just, I read reviews of wine that I can't, certainly could never afford, but I'd largely read them just to read the words and the phrases that he comes up with. And so one day I started, I took a yellow highlighter and I started highlighting all of the most ridiculous phrases that he used to describe wine. And then I put them together in this poem so that many of the phrases in this poem are not things that I would have written or would not have thought of. Um, and I strung them together and, and made this poem. So a lot of the things you'll hear are from his descriptions, obviously. Reading Parker. The white's taste of anise, quinine, quartz, Pears left to bloom in Provencal sun. Reds, masculine, broad-shouldered and hedonistic in a super-expressive, road-tar, candied red-cherry kind of way. Unlike the slow road to Bonn this winter afternoon, the only smell, the opal's heater on our feet as we drive into a life we hope will look like this. Sun-drenched gravel, covering a base of chalk, what the earth is made of here that makes its wine last so long. I was reading Parker from Chaos is the new calm. Uh, yep. Before you read another one, uh, can you explain a little bit about how the, this book came to be? Um, it, we, we mentioned, uh, I think off air, about the, the poems being in alphabetical order. <laughs> and, um, and, and how did you conceive, like, why did you end up writing 14 line poems? Um, you know, how do you think of a book? Like, like you finish say postcards from the interior and then you're done with that. How do you move <laughs> on to the next book? And, and how did you think about approaching it? Like, did you just happen to write a bunch of 14 line poems and say, Hey, I have a bunch of these. Let's yeah. keep it going. Is that how that it is? That is exactly what happened. And it kind of, I considered it kind of a curse, but I also considered it a really good thing. Um, that I, I swear every poem I wrote was 14 lines long. And so at a certain, I always wanted to write longer poems than that, but I couldn't. They always ended like as well as, as you got as I could end a poem on that 14th line. And so I finally thought, just roll with it, you know, go with it and see what happens. And I wrote a lot. I, I hate to even tell you the number, but it was it was a large number. Um, and I had just written the postcard book and I'd written all these postcard poems and I didn't really want to write another book that was 
programmatic, I don't know what the right word is, um, that was on a theme that, you know, had so many similar poems. Um, but they, you know, I was pretty happy with them. So I just kept going. I wrote some poems in that two-year period or whatever it was that were not 14 lines. Um, and fortunately, I hung on to those and used them later. But I just wrote so many. And the other thing that I did in the book that I as a way of keeping the poems from being too similar to each other. Um, no, no two poems in the book are in the same form. Um, so some are have very short lines, some are very long lines, but there's still always 14 lines. Some rhyme, some don't. Some have two beats per line, some have five beats per line. But there are no two poems that follow the same formula. Mm -hmm. um, and that helped keep it interesting for me. Uh, when I was done with the book, I could find no narrative arc, no way to organize the poems. And around that time, I was helping run the Brattleboro Literary Festival. And we were lucky enough to get Russell Edson to come and read for us, who's uh, the late Russell Edson, who was completely wacky in his poems and in person, believe me. Uh, and he got up to read, you know, when, when he did his reading, he got up there and said, I'm going to read the poems I, I've listed. I've made a list of the poems I'm going to read tonight. And I put them in alphabetical order. So I will start with the poem that starts with A, and I'll work my way through the alphabet. And he said, and as my close readers know, that's how I organize my books. I alphabetize the poems. And which he did, he was lying. Oh, really? <laughs> he <doesn't do> that. <laughs> I think he did that in one book. <laughs> uh, but that was, that was Russell. And so, but I got that idea from him and I alphabetized the poems and I swear they work off of each other in a way that it seems impossible that it would work that well. And uh, I work as an editor and I have recommended this to several poets that I, whose manuscripts I've edited. And they, two of the three, I think, were just amazed at how well it worked. And they ended up getting their books published. And, uh, and sure enough, they're in, the poems are in alphabetical order. It makes it very easy when you're at a reading and you want to find a poem. You just go to the table of contents and, you know, there it is. So it's very yeah, yeah. It, we do uh, at Rattle. We do the alphabetized by last name, and the same thing happens. Like poems seem to speak to each other sometimes, and mm -hmm. there's some strange, like I don't know, there's some magical mystery to it, or maybe just the the way our brains are trying to find patterns, and so there's a tension between there being a pattern and not. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask about what what do you think it is about fourteen lines? Like, why are sonnets fourteen lines? Like, what is it about the number 14 that makes it seem like the right number? I've always wondered about that because, you know, we have, you know, th there's sort of numbers behind everything and, and sort of strange ways that things work. And uh, <laughs> like, like just an I am is like the heartbeat, you know, and we even call it beats, ba-bump, you know. Right. And there's, right. there's something about it. What do you think is it that 14 lines makes the right length for a poem? Do you have any, any thoughts about that, having written a book of them? <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> um... <sighs> I, God, I really wish I did. Um, you can get a lot accomplished in 14 lines, especially if you have, if you write an iambic pentameter and you have, that way you have more words than a lot of people would use in a line because you have five beats. So, you know, maybe average of 10 syllables. 
Um, I, I think that it's probably historically, I mean, the, the sonnets that Shakespeare wrote are so extraordinary, and Milton's and Wordsworth's, um, that as readers and students of poetry, poets have been so influenced by that and have seen how much Shakespeare could accomplish and how there's usually sort of a turn in the poem, maybe the first eight lines lay out a situation, a moment, and then the last six lines resolve that in a certain way. I mean, that's kind of traditional formula for a sonnet. And I think that, you know, writers have just seen this work so many times over hundreds of years that why wouldn't you try that form? And then if it works for you, you keep going. And in my case, you write a couple hundred sonnets, you know. So Here, I, 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 have a, I, I have a theory what I, I just invented. But so, <laughs> so, uh, so you know, mostly sonnets are an iambic pentameter, right? So there's five, uh, five iams or beats per line, and um, and five times fourteen is seventy, which is about the the lifespan of a human being, right? So, yeah. uh, and then it, by the end of a life, you get some kind of meaning out of your life, and maybe uh, maybe each each sonnet is a human life. What do you think? I like that. Well. I- Absolutely like that. And that was very, very good for you to do that that quickly. I'm impressed. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to pull out like the sacred geometry and, and things like that. But I don't know. I, I don't have anything for, uh, for, for 70 or 14. But um, anyway, let's hear what, what was the last poem that you wanted to read from this book? Um, actually, I'd rather read a few new poems. Oh, yeah, that's sure. Okay. Um, yeah, we, we have about 10 minutes left. So, um, okay. so it's time for it's good. Good for other poems. Uh, sure. What do you oh, want to read? Okay. Um, I want to read a, a poem called I Trust the Wind and Don't Know Why. Um, it was a poem's a very big deal for me because it was in The New Yorker um, last year, I guess. Um, and I'll, I'll just read it. I, I, I think I'll just read it. Okay. There's a lot to say about the poem, but I, I, I should just, since we don't have a lot of time. Um, I Trust the Wind and Don't Know Why. I am not the girl in the picture. I am not the smell of hyacinths. I might be the boy. I am off the record. I am not a view from the island, not the sound of waves breaking, not parasols scattered on sand. I am closed for the season. I'm fingerprints on windows that look out on rain. I am rain that rains harder. I'm not the new fashion, not hands on a clock. I don't spring forward, cannot turn back. I am yellow caution tape strung from pole to pole. Police line, do not cross. I see the sky, but nothing in it, just spots on the sun. Then the long twilight, then the crackle of stars. It's a great poem from the New Yorker. Uh, I, we don't have to rush. Uh, uh, what? Okay. What would you like to say about that poem? I'm, I'm kind of curious uh, what you had in mind. Um, yeah, I. It's funny because after you know I published this and a lot of people saw it and a lot of people commented on it. Just but the comments were always like, "I love that poem. It's a great poem." Blah blah blah. But of course, they're going to say that. Um, is it only two people out of those? I don't know, hundreds of people asked me what it was about, which kind of surprised me, you know, because it's not a poem you can easily grasp onto. 
Um, and it's funny because it's, it's hard for me to explain because I don't completely understand it either. And that to me is the, the poems that I like the most. Um, like they feed, they lion by Philip Levine. I have never completely understood that poem. Um, and that's why I like to read it over and over and over again and hear him read it. Um, I, my niece, Audrey, went, did study abroad, and she lived on the island of Lesbos in Greece um, and loved it, of course. And then, you know, a couple of years later, Lesbos was a place where a lot of Syrian refugees were landing. And I started thinking about the difference between what that island was like for her and what it was like for them. And I started thinking about identity and about how the refugees, you know, were no longer Syrian in a way because they were, you know, going to Europe and trying to find a place where they could be accepted and where they could live. Um, and that a lot of them had to hide their identity. And that made me think about identity in general and about people who have to hide their identity because of their gender, because of their sexuality, um, because of their religious beliefs, you know, whatever it is. And so that got me thinking about identity. And um, I, just, I just went from there. And so I think the poem explores those things, but it doesn't do it in a direct way. It's not a political poem. Um, it's not a didactic poem. It's just more of an exploration. It's more of an associative poem. Um, and I don't know. That's, that's about it. Yeah. How, how do you uh, navigate that balance between clarity and that mystery because you know we we want poems that do like you said that we don't can't quite articulate um mm -hmm. and it, that, that they reach for something beyond what we can express i think is the goal really of, of poetry and uh, but then you you can't have the poems be so opaque that you can't nobody can access them either so is there a way <laughs> you think about finding the balance between those two between clarity and, and opacity and, and the mystery that's behind the poem that you can't express yeah, I do. Um, I think about it every day, actually. Um, I believe in the unconscious, and I write a lot of my poems in some ways from my unconscious. I'm more concerned about the language of the poem than I am about the meaning, because I believe that as humans, our brains are hardwired to make sense. And that we will make sense no matter how hard we try to not make sense. Um, and I know this from the experience of being a teacher, of having my students I say, I want you to write a poem that makes no sense. And they'd say, oh, well, that's easy. And then they would bring them to class and I would read them. And then I would go through and explain to them exactly what their poem meant. And, you know, they, it, it awoke a lot, of, um, a lot in them as people and as poets. Um, and so... I often write poems that don't make a lot of sense to me at first, but I'm going with the language. I'm going with the sound of the poem. Um, and then I start, and then I realize that maybe it does make sense, especially if I rearrange those lines, especially if I get rid of a lot of those lines and write new ones. 
And I, I mean, I do think of it as kind of a puzzle because I'm, I don't set out to write a poem about anything. My least favorite thing as a poet is when people say, oh, you should write a poem about that. That's <laughs> not how it works, you know, not for me anyway. And um, so I try to write a poem that sounds as good as possible, that does make sense, but I don't worry about it being completely clear to every reader on a first reading. I, I hope that readers can bring what they want to bring to the poem. Um, and if they have, if they take a certain meaning away from it that I didn't intend, that's great. That shows that the poem is working. Um, I'm not trying to get anybody to read a poem one way. I had a high school teacher that taught Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost. And you got a better grade if you wrote about the fact that it's about Santa Claus. Um, and that that did not sit well with me. Um, but it didn't stop me from reading or writing poetry, mm -hmm. fortunately, right? Um, anyway, that's... I guess that is. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's, that's a great great insight into how to go about it because I I feel like it has to do with the right and left brain. I think the the right brain is the holistic one that notices things but doesn't can't articulate mm. and isn't isn't fine, and so it knows things that you don't, and mm -hmm. uh, and so it can express itself through art. And I think that's what what makes art work. And 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 then so it's our right brain speaking to each other, and that's why we sort of pull meaning out of things that don't mm -hmm. that we can't articulate. Right. Um, uh, one last thing I wanted to ask about, because you do do a lot of uh, editing work, uh, putting mm -hmm. books together for people. And I, I assume, is it always poetry? Uh, that you no, no, I no? do a lot of fiction. I've done memoirs, um, I've done nonfiction, sort of borderline academic books. Um, so so uh, well, just in terms of poetry, um, what is, the, is there any kind of advice that you find yourself giving over and over again to people um, as you look at their manuscripts? <sighs> um. Kill Your Darlings. Um, a lot of the poems that are the people's favorite poems are the, are not good. And I have to advise them to take them out of the manuscript or to drastically revise them. Um, gosh, I don't know if there's that many things that I say over and over again. A lot of people has, have poems that are too similar to each other mm -hmm. um, and they need to, and they use certain words over and over again, um, like the word dream, or they write all, a lot of dream poems, which I'm not a fan of. Um, and they don't realize that. Um, when I published uh, Mars Poetica, Dennis Maloney, the editor of White Pine said, you know, do you realize that you have used the word I don't remember what word it was, you know, 14 times in this book, because what he had done, which you just use search and document in Word, and you can find out how many times a word has been used. And I do that when I edit other people's books now to show them that they've used windmill 14 times, and that that's maybe not such a good thing, that there it's kind of become a crutch for them. Um, but I, I can't think of anything that I say to you know, most everybody, honestly. Um, anyway. Um, one last question I wanted to pass along toward the end. Uh, Kevin McClellan asks, um, how would you describe the poems that you're writing now? And, you know, the Mars Poetica is uh, three years old now. Um, right. And how are they different from your earlier poems? Like, how do you, do you, do you think of the arc of your, your writing style? Is, is, has something changed over that period? Well, actually, my style has changed. It 
It's because of something Kevin McClellan said to me. Really? <laughs> Was he fishing for his own compliment? Or something? <laughs> no, no. Um, Kevin, Kevin and I are in a workshop together. In fact, we're having a party tonight with the other members of the workshop. There goes a siren. Can you hear it? Yeah. yeah. Um, I live on a pretty uh, main street here. Um, Kevin writes poems. That are, Kevin is a fine, fine poet, and I recommend that everyone look, look him up and read his poems. Um, he is more experimental than I am. And one day in the workshop, he said, if you're not trying new things, if you're not reaching beyond what you've written before, then what's the point? And I have really taken that to heart. I'm not sure I've ever told Kevin this, um, but it's true. And I have tried to write poems that are I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to write poems that are less easy to understand, but I'm trying to go beyond what I've done before. And I do think that the poems have become more difficult, um, whether I want them to be or not. But again, because of using my unconscious, um, I do make sense of what I've written, even when I think I'm just writing nonsense. Um, so I, I think that's about the best answer I can give. But but thank you, Kevin, for asking the question and for changing my poems for better or worse. I don't know if they're better or worse than they well, were. Well, I love these two these two new ones. Um, so I think it, I, I don't know. It's good stuff um, and good, good advice. A lot of great insight in this uh, conversation. Thanks for doing it. When do you want to finish out with uh, the last poem you wanted to share? Um, sure. I probably should read the one that you published, shouldn't I? Oh, yeah. Wait, let's do two more poems. How about... Because you wanted to do the uh, Paris Review poem, right? So let's do... Yeah, yeah, I would love to do that. Okay. Yeah, let's do both because they're not that long. Okay. okay. Um, this, this poem was in the Paris Review um, last year, I guess. Um, and I, I've had a lot of reactions to it from people thinking I wrote it about the pandemic, but I wrote it before the pandemic started. And that goes back to my point of people taking their own meaning away from things. It shows you that maybe you wrote a better poem than you thought you did, um, or that it, you know, that it's just existing on multiple levels or whatever. Um, message in a bottle. I close in on facts fine as sugar poured from a bottle labeled salt. Comprehend nothing. I hear a knock, then another. Go to the door, but no one's there. I unlock it and leave it open. When the bottle's empty, a note pops out. Its paper faded as the globe on my desk. It's unreadable. I spin the globe to see where it stops. It rolls off the desk and hits the door, which closes so hard it opens again. I spin the globe more gently this time. It stops where a country used to be. I am tired. I am so tired of this. And that was Message in a Bottle from uh, the Paris Review and then reprinted on Poetry Daily. Right. Um, and and it, really, that poem does feel like it's about the pandemic. I mean, that's the thing. that it, There's just this so much magic that goes on with poetry, which is what I like. As, as somebody who has more of an analytical, like, science-y type brain, the weirdness that comes up with poetry, it's just a never-ending, you know, fascination for me. And and that's one of those where it feels like you were like presaging the pandemic and how you're going to be feeling coming up. Uh, so it, it's just fascinating to, to read that or hear you read that. Um, and do you want to finish out with a smoke? Sure. Okay. 
And I said that I don't write many poems from my own life, but this is a poem about my father. I wrote many, many, many poems about him after he died. And uh, they were all just terrible. They were just, just awful. And so I finally wrote one that I was pleased with, or I wouldn't have sent it to you if I didn't want to see it in print. And I have shown it, well, obviously many people read it in rattle because you have so many subscribers. Um, I've also sent it to a couple people that I was pretty sure don't subscribe to Rattle. Um, and their their reactions were just all over the map. And one of them said, I'm so sorry you were so estranged from your father, but I wasn't. Um, and so that that's just so interesting to me um, that, that he would have read it that way. Anyway, smoke. The lens that zooms in's out of focus. No discernible shapes, just shades of colors that waver and pulse until an image is half disclosed, then revolved in its frame, then revealed. A beating heart suspended in smoke. Two, what red rivers run there? What canyons do they carve? What dark stones exposed when the blood stops flowing? Focus. My first teacher told me, focus. I'm sorry, I keep forgetting the numbers. Four, my father, he only hit me twice. He knew, I knew, I deserved more. He was helpless to change me, though not as helpless as when he was younger, when he was hit harder. Five, they put a stent in his arm on his 66th birthday dark tunnel through which to wash toxins from blood. He told me to touch the stent, which was warm and felt like it had its own pulse. It's my pussy, he said. Six, he grew tired of blood going in and out. He grew tired of everything. Without the machine, his body would fill with poison. He would drown in himself. Seven, like this for me, buddy, he said the last day, handing me an old gold, the cheap brand he'd smoked since the Depression. I could hear the morphine screaming in his veins, could feel it in my own. I focused on our blood. I lit his cigarette. His smoke curled up to the ceiling of what had been my bedroom. Then it was gone. Uh, Win Cooper's Smoke from the newest issue of Rattle. A perfect uh, way to end a Father's Day Rattle cast. Uh, you'd think we'd plan it that way, but we didn't. I had no idea it was Father's Day when we set up this date. Um, but th thanks, Win. It was such a pleasure talking to you and, and hearing more of your work and, and a lot of insights, too. I really appreciate you joining us. I appreciate you inviting me, and I appreciate, and I, I hope that a lot of people do, how much you do for the poetry world. I think you do as much as anyone um, with all of your cat, the, all the rattle casts, the open mics that you do. Um, and just your dedication to poetry is just really something to be admired. So thank you, Tim. Well, well thanks for saying that. I appreciate it, Win. Uh, but it's great to meet you and talk to you. I, I really appreciate right. it. Have a good rest okay. of your Sunday. All right. You too. Take thank care. you. All right. Bye. It was Wynn Cooper, uh, of course, with his most recent poem in Rattle, number 72. But then he also has um, these books here, uh, Chaos is the New Calm from Boa. Um, 
Postcards from the Interior, also from Boa. And then Mars Poetica, his most recent book. Um, and that is from uh, White Pine Press. Um, and those are the three most recent books uh, by Wynn. You can find more of Wynn Cooper at Wynn... Oops, let me see. Drop this down. At WynnCooper.com. And it's spelled just like uh, his name, W. Y-N-C-O-O-P-E-R, wincooper.com. So find him there. And um, now we're going to be moving on to the open lines. So um, we have a prompt, as we always do, and this week's prompt was, um, if anybody has these poems, it was to, uh, macro photography is the close-up, highly detailed photo... Oops, I keep cutting this off. I keep sliding over in the middle of the show. Macro photography is the close-up, highly detailed photography of small objects or organisms. Common subjects include an insect wing or a blade of grass. So the prompt was to write a macro poem, however you interpret that. So if you have a macro poem, make sure you uh, send it to me at open uh, open mic, that's open M-I-C, at rattle.com. And uh, send it there so I can show it on screen. And then call me up uh, in just a minute at... Uh, Rattle Poetry over Skype. That's Rattle Poetry, all one word. Send me a chat message. I will call you back when it's your turn. Or phone 818-850-7727. Let it ring a few times, then hang up. I will call you back when the time is right. As I mentioned, we have a whole bunch of other poems, so we have no shortage of poems to share now for the open lines. is is like 100 people sent me a poem uh, this week, so we can uh, we can pick through those a little bit too as we have extra time. But anybody who'd like to be joining us live, um, that's the priority. So anybody who can call in, we have uh, Mike Bales, we have Gordon Capola, we have Unmesh Mahatkar, Julian Matthews, Nivedita Karthik, uh, Richard Westheimer. So we'll get all you guys on in just a moment. So send that poem on in. I'm going to take a really brief brief break. Uh, while I do that, I'll tell you that next week's guest is going to be. Uh, Tina Parker and her new book, Lock Her Up. Uh, Tina Parker is one of the more creative poets that um, you know, she has a lot of really experimental, really interesting, small, concise little poems. And um, that is uh, Tina Parker. Uh, she had a poem back in Rattle number 50, 42, I think. And uh, I've been a fan of her work for a long time. So it's going to be interesting to talk to her for Rattlecast number 99 next week. Um, I don't like this song. Let me Let me just get rid of that song. I like this song better. And that'll be our bumper music. And I'll be back in just a minute after I stretch my legs and get everything organized. Okay. And I'm back. Thanks so much for giving me a little bit of a time to stand up and get this stuff organized. Now, as I mentioned, uh, this week's prompt poem was to um, write a macro poem. And um, so I tried to write a micro-macro poem, and so did Megan. And uh, this is one of those weeks Megan just kicked my butt with the quality of hers. But that's the way it goes sometimes when you're married. Uh, This is uh, my poem, Macro, um, and here it goes really quick. Macro. Somehow the ants have found their way inside the only cherry on the tree. They swim inside the sweetness of an open wound split by the beak of the Stellar's jay I'd startled off just yesterday. That is my macro poem. And here's Megan's poem, which Megan uh, tells me that I should say, or, or she swears to me, that it's not about us. So apparently we, we this is called After the Fight, and it's not our fight, apparently. So here we go, After the Fight. 
The breath between them is a universe freckled with stars, tilting planets, swirls of nebula, and somewhere on a satellite without a name, a tiny village tells their children how the gods litter the sky with unsaid things that fall like the slightest snow. So there's Megan's another micro-macro poem, After the Fight. I just love those last four lines. So good. Um, now let's see what you have, and let's call up first. Um, let's do uh, Let's do Gordon Coppola. I had his poem right here. He's got a prompt poem to share. Let's call up Gordon. Hey, Gordon, how you doing today? Thank you. Same to you, I assume. Um, hope you're having a good one. Uh, so what do, you, what do you have to share with us? Oh, Appreciation of one of the many great things Rattle does. Uh, just last night, I read uh, this book that uh, accompanied issue 72, uh, the Young uh, Poets Anthology. And I read it last night, and just some remarkable art and language and insights, and, and not even using the diminutive for a child. I mean, this is some seriously good writing, uh, and I really appreciate the fact that you are giving a, a voice to these young poets that are what would never have had that kind of exposure before, and I think it's just a, a wonderful thing. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, it's just fascinating to read these poems and, and see what, what young people are coming up with. Like I, um, It was just an idea to, to do a, a one-off kind of thing. It was Megan's idea. I remember, still remember we were at breakfast one day uh, out at a restaurant, and she said, maybe we should do a kid's thing. And so we decided to whip up a kids' anthology, and uh, we were just blown away. I had no idea the kind of things that would be coming in from, from these young writers, um, especially the really young ones. Um, just amazing sort of leaps of imagination and insight. Oh, they're, yeah. They're really creative and, and, uh, and, and worth reading for adults. I mean, that's the, the, what we try to do is, is show the voice of kids to adults and what kids are thinking these days. And, and it's a lot. It's a lot. I've learned more doing this anthology than I have, I think, other, any other issue of Rattle, actually. Sure. All right. So my, my prompt poem is called Macro This. Okay. Ink and paper simulacrum, both less and more ephemeral than whatever tangible is. Symbols of particular shapes and sizes, but malleable, subtle, gross, narrow, infinite, Words at some level of meaning to certain observers proceed across, then down this phantom page. Not so small as its creator. Erased, all may be recovered, except when, until, it cannot. Uh, excellent poem, Macro This by Gordon Cabola. Thanks for sharing that, Gordon. Thank you, Tim. You have a good day. Yep, you too. Uh, that was Gordon Coppola with Macro This. Um, I should remind everybody, uh, which Gordon knows, but but other people might not if you're calling in for the first time, that uh, you have to make sure you hang up your um, your phone or your stream and just talk to me through um, either uh, Skype or the phone because otherwise there's a delay and it gets confusing. You'll have two voices of me in, in the air at the same time and, and it's hard to follow. Um, and we get the feedback too. So make sure you shut off your phone. And uh, let's go to Nivedita Karthik next. Here we go. Let's call up Nivy. Hello. Hello, Nivy. How are you doing today? Hey, Tim. I'm doing great, thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. I finally, it took a little while to wake up this morning. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I finally got into the swing of it, I think. Um, so, so what did you want to share with us this week? 
Um, I have two poems, as always, a separate from poem, and then I have one for the new story. Mm-hmm. Which do you want to do first? Um, it's up to you, as always. I have both poems up and ready here. So okay, well, let's do, uh, let's do the prompt poem, then. That's the one I just happen to have up, uh, the okay, macro. Okay, great. Uh-huh, the macro poem, yes. And, uh, and what was this about? I, we have a picture, too. Uh-huh, so it was basically about the grains we see on wood, like a table or a chair, if we have that, then... We see those grains and it got me thinking about how those grains actually came into play hmm. and what might have caused them. And so that's basically what it's about. And that was just a random picture I had. I don't know what I took it of. I think if I remember correctly, like I said, we were shifting house. So that time we were doing a whole lot of spring cleaning. And this was, I think, the aftermath of one of those cleaning sessions. So there's remnants of water and soap bubbles on there as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's hear this wood grade. Go ahead whenever you're hmm. ready. Okay, good. Thank you. Wood grain. Note the sinuous curves, the tangential lines, the concentric rings. This is how the sap river ran, centuries ago, from the root to the top of the tree. Dark and silent, this river ran, under the bark and through the branches, up to the leaves. The sap river carved its way and created its niche, held its own and made a mark. Despite never seeing a tide in its life, or meeting its brethren at the sea, for its journey ended at the leaves under the warmth of the sun. Excellent. And that was uh, Woodgrain, uh, the prompt poem by Nivedita. And, and what's the other one that you have a news poem for us, too? Um, as always, it's a funny news story. So I think it's, I don't know where, but somewhere in the U.S. there's this cat that, as cats are wont to do, as people tell me since I don't own one, Cats like always sort of stealing things and hiding them. So that's what this cat did and this owner caught wind of it and she sort of made a sort of clothesline for all the items that her cat took and put it up in her yard with a sign saying, I'm sorry that my cat took this. If it's yours, please take it back. And my cat is not a thief. That Those are the words that mainly stood out to me. So. <laughs> that's funny I, uh, man that, that's a, so we people are seeing the picture on the screen that is a lot of gloves it's a the cat loves gloves and masks too apparently but um, and face masks now yes yeah yeah it's uh interesting i wonder i wonder what it is about the about that <laughs> that's funny um okay let's hear the poem whenever whenever you're ready for it thank you thank you uh, the cat's name is esme by the way <laughs> esme meet esme the cat the cat that is fluffy and fat. This adorable kitty in black has a special knack. She wanders around getting pets from friends and then thanks them by stealing their odds and ends. She can't help being a cute little klepto, you see, especially when you leave your things lying around your backyard tree. A face mask, a sock, and a gardening glove. These are the things she so does love and then promptly carries them back home and hides them so they're safe from those pesky garden gnomes. Cats can see gnomes, don't you know? That's the real reason their eyes are aglow. She takes pride in her job and does it well without pay or glory. What's a job, you ask? Well, she is head of your local neighborhood object missing repository. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Nivy. That was a, another funny poem. Always nice to have a, those uh, uplifting uh, humor to add to the day. Thanks, Nivy. Thank you, Tim. It's lovely talking to you. Have a nice Sunday. Yep, you too. Have a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, uh, that was Nivedita Karthik with uh, two poems, Esme and Woodgrain.
And um, let's see. So, so I, on, to be honest, I completely forgot that I mentioned on that that email that um, people could share poems here. So, um, I think I'm going to have to organize a little more. I'm able to do a random one, just for a sense of um, what we what we got. So, people, interesting. So, so I just clicked on something at random. This is Anthony Murphy who sent this in. Um, this is a Vimeo video he wanted to share. Um, it is called Bit in the Meadow. The author and voice is Anthony Murphy. You can find him at anthonycmurphy.com. Video by Jethro Leonard. And this is on Jethro Leonard's um, um, Vimeo channel. So let's just watch that. Um, and we'll see the kind of things that people are sending in. I think in the future I'll organize and sort of plan what to read from this uh, this new cache we have of things people wanted to share. But here's one for now. Um, this is, let me get this situated. This is a um, Bit in the Meadow by Anthony Murphy. Bit in the Meadow. Then there, a cold November wind shivering the naked trees, this cause of fall and blasted lips, cheeks laid bare are rosy, as are the heads of silly men. Hogs skitter under hedges here. You know the scene. The colours have gone green, gold, yellow, red. It makes our minds flutter this time of year. Makes us think of flying or hunkering down. While we know who we are, do we not know well? We know where we come from and from where we sip. But sometimes when death drips this slow, we do wonder if, we will have a bit of each other again in the sprung tall meadow. So very interesting. Uh, once again, that was uh, a bit, bit in the meadow, and you can find uh, published seven months ago by Jethro Leonard over on uh, that Vimeo channel. So that was something that we uh, can share for the uh, open lines right now. Let's go to uh, another person who's actually here, though. Um, let's call up. Let me find some. Let's do Mike Bales. I don't think Mike's been on in a bit. No problem, Mike. So how are you doing today? Uh, pretty good. Um, I'm hoping I've got a writer's conference to go to this week. I've got to register for that, and there might be a workshop by someone else this afternoon. So oh, very, very cool. What, what writer's good. workshop is that? Um, I always say poets have some pretty good stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's called... I forget what it's called. They've got some pretty good things. Once they had something at Dora Malik, and she had me writing uh, writing something anyway, I forget. Oh, writing a, oh well, a sonnet. Uh-huh. Um, so so what, um, poem, what poem did you want to share with us today? Well, I sent it to you in Submittable. I know you like kind of different news stories. Mm-hmm. There's something in the Des Moines Register. You might have a link to it, too, about a pipe organ factory that burnt down in northwest iowa oh wow yeah i, so I thought that's a little bit of a different story for you it's noted for building some really huge and ornate organs oh that's too bad to see it go we, we we see the pictures here at home of the of the uh, the factory on fire and the old organs that used to be built there those are impressive wow yeah some of the largest in the world but maybe not necessarily the largest one um, okay, so so your poem is Notes Still Rise. Why don't you go ahead and read it whenever you'd like? Yeah, certainly. A note still rise. Renowned for its pipes, the factory burns. 
no more organs built for churches or concert halls, but one still plays at a church in Sioux City. Notes still rise for weddings and funerals, turning points in life with all the reverence a family can give. The family's recent creation, 52,000 hours made, the Opus 76 waits at Philadelphia's Performance Arts Center to fill the air with love. Excellent poem. That was uh, Notes Still Rise by Mike Bales uh, from this article uh, from the Des Moines Register. Thanks so much for sharing that, Mike. Thanks for calling. I've had a good time here. All right, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. Talk to you soon. All right, bye. Bye. Um, yeah, it was Mike Bales from uh, Devonport, Iowa. And uh, let's see. Next up, let's call uh, Let's call Richard Westheimer. Then we have Julian Matthews, Unmeshed Mohit Carr still. Um, and let me remind you once again, the numbers are on screen. If you'd like to join in, we have plenty of room. Uh, openmicatrattle.com, email the poem there if you haven't submitted it so that I can show it on screen as you read. And then uh, Skype me at Rattle Poetry or phone me at 818 Seven, but let's call up Richard Westheimer now. He was next in line. I think he had two poems for us, both a prop poem and a PR poem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, Richard, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. It's good, good, good interviews today, and I love that last multimedia piece that you uh, that you just shared. Yeah, that was interesting. The, 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 the thing I like about the open lines is you just never know what you're going to get see, and and that's always the fun of it. And uh, that was a fun one. Yeah. So, well, good. Well, happy Father's Day to you. I don't know if if your uh, your children make it known to you that it's Father's Day. Or... They do. They they make me cards and things. They're creative. They have fun with it. Um, but I, we haven't done anything yet because I was all running around getting this set up at the, the little bit of time I had before I, between the starting and when I woke up. Right. Um, so so what do you want to share today? We have a PR poem and a prompt poem. Let's do both. But what do you want to do first? Uh, well, I do them in order. I'll do the PR poem just to just to just for the downer effect of it. Um, and, uh, whoops, sorry, are you still there? Yeah, we're still here. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, I, I clicked the wrong key. So uh, this one I uh, sent a redraft to you called The Thought of a Mouse, and it's about this terrible mouse plague in Australia that is just... It, it it is not an infrequent yeah. occurrence, or but it is uh, it, it's worse this time, and just millions and millions of mouse plaguing, especially agricultural areas. Yeah, I hadn't heard about this. Uh, I have to go look up a story about it. The, the thought of a mouse. Go ahead, whenever you're ready. Okay, uh, the thought of a mouse. One death is a tragedy. A million, a statistic, misattributed to Joseph Stalin. There are unnamed people in my life who buy out bait shops to rescue worms, catch house mouse mice live, and take them outside. They say these creatures have souls. Mice, for example, feel. They feel pain, feel for each other. They fear, they play, they coo, they sigh, they pine. A mated pair fret about infidelity. But what about the millions of mice down under? that have plagued farmer's grain, whose incessant chitter and scratch runs men mad, whose pea stench seeps into walls and bedding, where closets of clothes are shredded to make nests for all those mated pairs to bear babies. 
They thrive and grow and swarm under floors, a thousand million saboteurs driving families from their homes, their lands, their sleep, haunted. At my house, I find tiny turds in the silverware drawer, set snap traps, when successful, lament each cracked neck, but am glad to be rid of the mess. The unnamed people in my life don't want to, um, um, unnamed people in my life don't want to hear about it, don't want to know of the Aussie's plight, can't bear the thought of barrels of pips learned to drown in baited water and thousands more savaged by other mice. It's kill or be killed, mice kill mice, people kill mice, people kill people, mice kill people, water kills, hantavirus kills, fleas kill, ticks in war and rising tides kill, and I trap a single mouse, a critter whose mate will miss him, a billion like him terrorize the Aussies, each one coos and sighs and pines, and I don't care or can't care except about the one who, flat, who fouls my flatware. And me, I care about me. And if some reader expects me to make sense of souls or suffering or a million deaths or one or the difference between a creature's pain and people's, they'd do better to read another poem because I've got nothing, nothing but sorrow for the millions, shame for the one, and clean forks and knives to set for my dinner guests. That was a great poem, Richard, The Thought of a Mouse. And I um, we moved out to the country like, ten years ago, and we have mice. I never really had mice, you know, before. And um, at the same time, I've read some about like you know Pangsep's work and, and the play circuit and how much how social mice are, and it is just heartbreaking to sort of. I mean, I can't. We can't have mice devouring <laughs> devouring our insulation and wires and things. So I have to put out traps too. Yeah. Um, but 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 it's heartbreaking. It really is. Um, but when I read that they they argue about infidelity really yeah yes i mean wow. that's in, in in the poem i i try I, I try to make sure that it stands up to science people um but they argue about i mean they they have these conversations and you know like then uh, they kiss and make up and they do all these things and yeah. the thought of millions of them i know how do they hold the social order together? Yeah, yeah, and we get like five in there. They cause havoc, you know, for a week. <laughs> and yes. to have like five million. Indeed. Oh, man. My um, wife is a great hunter. She's really the one. Who yeah, that. yeah. Well, we use those electric ones. I think those are the most humane I've, I've oh, heard. But... I'll, have to, I'll have to look at them. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, let's hear the other poem you got, too. This is the... Okay, this is the macro poem. Uh, e Pluribus Unum. I rub my thumb over the sharp edge of one broken stone, gravel ground down in the Pleistocene. If the tiny bryozoans that compose this rock could speak in the tongue of me and the people who scooped it up in great buckets, loaded it and its kin into trucks, dumped and spread onto the lane that threads my neighborhood, its words in song might echo the lap of water of the ancient seas, that teemed with cystids and polypides and gathered in gyral dance from lifeless to zoid, thronged with others of their design. Out of many one they'd chant, remembering how 
zooid and zooid and zooid joined into fan and flower and crown, shaped colonies that flourished, then fossilized. They'd sing of becoming something from nothing, of unknown ancestors and, and descendants of encrusted rock and now living moss, and of how when my fleshy hand that holds them is gone, they will remain. Another great poem, Richard. You're just knocking them out of the park. That's another good one. Uh, thanks for sharing it. I love all the words in that um, and the sounds. Thanks for sharing yeah, that, yeah, the sounds were pretty pretty like, oh, maybe those go in the poem. <laughs> yeah, I think they have to. Uh, okay. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Tim. Bye. Yep, have a good one. Happy Father's Day to you, too. Thanks. Do we, I want to make sure I don't miss anybody. I think I might just wrap up the show then. And uh, it's been a great one, though. And I'm so glad everybody could join me. Uh, Win Cooper was really fun to talk to. A lot of great poems on the open mic. Uh, got a great poems and uh, Poetry Spawn live ahead of time. So uh, good stuff all around. Let me see. So I think that's going to be it. Yeah, I think we're going to wrap up the show. Now, uh, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is... Oh, wait, no. First of all, next week's prompt. Uh, next week's prompt is right here. Write a poem based on a folk tale or fairy tale that's next week's prompt write a poem based on a folk tale or fairy tale if you want to look back um for some inspiration ron kirchie who is the the guest on rattlecast i don't know last year sometime maybe 50 or so um he has a whole book of sort of fractured fairy tale poems that might be fun to uh to check out and think about how you want to approach this prompt uh, but there's a lot of ways you can do it write a poem based on a folk tale or fairy tale i'm pretty open-ended pick one write a poem that is your prompt for next week, and then next week's guest on the Randallcast, like I mentioned, is going to be Tina Parker. And Tina Parker's most recent book is Lock Her Up. Um, she just, uh, I love, she has a book about um, about parenting, and, and um, that's really good too. Uh, this newest book, Lock Her Up, is uh, just out, hot off the presses. And uh, she's just one of the most creative poets I know. She really plays a lot with sound and language and how poems look on the page. And um, it'll be really interesting to talk to her about how she approaches poetry, which is, I think, I assume, in a different way than uh, the, the last couple guests have been. So we'll, we'll see how uh, Tina Parker approaches poetry in Rattlecast number 99. Uh, her newest book, Lock Her Up, will be the feature. We'll have that prompt. And it's at the regular time, Sunday, June 27th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. That's the regular time when we don't have to shift. And I uh, hope to see you then. Hope you have a great rest of your Sunday. And I'll talk to you soon. Goodbye.